Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. I saw a movie a few years back called The Wedding Crashers. It's a lightweight romantic comedy about two guys that like to go to weddings they hadn't been invited to. Now, they go mostly for the parties, the free dinners, the drinks, but really just to pick up women who they think are vulnerable because they've been to a wedding. So in a three-week period, these guys go to 17 weddings, and they become really good at all parts of it. In one scene, they are sitting in a pew watching the bride go down the aisle, and one guy says to the other, oh, looks like we've got a crier. And the other guy says, no way. 20 bucks says she doesn't cry. And then she sees her groom and bursts into tears. Then it comes time for the scripture reading, and the bridesmaid comes up to the lectern to read, and one guy whispers to the other, $20, it's 1 Corinthians. The other guy said, nope, 40 bucks, it's Colossians 3.12. And then she starts to read, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. And then there's this little victory dance right in the pew from a guy who just won 40 bucks betting on 1 Corinthians 13. It is a good bet, though, at a wedding. Couples getting married keep returning to that text. In fact, I'm betting that probably 1 Corinthians 13 is probably the second best well-known verse in the Bible, second only to the 23rd chapter of Psalms. And no wonder, because it's so beautiful and it's poetic and it's about love. And even though, for many though, it doesn't really sound all that religious. Notice that Jesus isn't mentioned, God isn't mentioned. Words about God often divide people, but love is just everybody's language. So even the Bible can sometimes lay the God talk aside to kind of gather everybody in and say some words about love. And as we celebrate Valentine's Day tomorrow, I thought it might be nice to speak about this love chapter. This chapter begins by casting doubt about certain manners of religion and its practices. Now remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to a particular church here in Corinth whose members have been expressing their faith in impressive ways. Some of these Christians are so full of the Spirit that their worship is ecstatic. They could even speak in tongues. Some in this church are very knowledgeable people and express their faith in profound intelligence. Some have developed a fine ascetic sensibility and understand that a church ought to express its faith with a certain amount of elegance. And some in this congregation are so spiritually discerning, they can actually tell what will happen in the future. Some are all about service, sacrificially giving themselves and all their resources to the poor. Well, 
All of that is wonderful, wonderful religion. It just happens to be worthless. That's how 1 Corinthians 13 begins, that all of that is pathetic and that the people of the church are the biggest losers if at the center of all of that is not living love. And please note, the Apostle Paul is not taking aim at the worst things about these people. His eye is on their very best qualities, enthusiasm, knowledge, elegance, service. And Paul says, I could possess all of that, but if love isn't living in it, I am lost. If we don't have love, then everything else is just noise and busy work, and it doesn't mean a thing. Now, if he were writing in such a way to our church, he might point out, our most beautiful music, our active stepping forward program, maybe some of the care groups that we offer or the work that we do with children and teens. And of course, the really fine sermons you get here. (laughs) And then Jesus would look at us and ask, but, but is it really alive with my love? Because if it isn't, well, Sorry, faith community, you are nothing. You've lost. I suppose he could address that to each one of us individually. What are you good at, or at least pretty good at? What are your best qualities or talents? Isn't it nice to have something that you are at least pretty good at? But if you don't have God's love ruling in your heart, then whatever it is, is pointless. So, 1 Corinthians 13, they, that great, great hymn to love begins severely with the bad news of the real possibility that our very best will mean nothing at all. Well, I've got love, don't you? I love you. You love me. Thank you. I love my family. I love my friends. I love this church. I love the poor, I love the world. You know, we've got love. We've got love. Paul says without love we are nothing, but we have love. We're something. Now, ever since I've been working on this sermon, the Beatles have been singing in my mind. All you need is love. You know that song, All You Need Is Love, John Lennon's voice, great harmony from Paul and the brass and the strings. It's really a great song, a great song. And I love that song. All you need is love, all you need is love. Love is all you need. Well, I have to confess, too, that, you know, I thought, Jeff, about the choir and, and, and Mary and all of them singing that song. All you need is love. And we all just get up and start singing that song. I just fantasized that. And ultimately, in the sense that Paul means it, it really is true. I can just imagine the apostles all sitting there with Paul and George and John and Ringo, and they're just singing this song together. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. But then you look at the apostle Paul's eyes, and you see that there is a gleam in their rising from some deeper place that most of us have not yet known. 
and then it puts to shame many of my words and my feelings about loving anybody, loving the poor, loving the world, for the love that Paul means has a power in it and a grace in it that is really, really rare among us. And Paul points to 15 characteristics of that love. I'm going to name them now, and we can all check our lives against them and give ourselves a grade. It's a pass-fail test. Are you ready? Let's try it. Love is always patient. Love is always kind. Love does not envy, does not brag. It is never arrogant, never rude, never insists on having its own way, is not irritable or ever resentful, keeps no record of wrong, delights only in the truth, bears all things, never stops believing, never stops hoping, never gives up. Well, how did you do? Well, I got an F. I failed. And when I tell myself and anybody else that I truly love them, maybe it's really just what I wish I could do. What is happening here is often what happens in Scripture. The thing is just lifted up for us in its true, pure, real form, and the veil is pulled away, and there it is, blindingly beautiful, and it takes our breath away, and we say, God, God, is that, is that really what love looks like? And the answer is yes. And even more than you can know, it is infinite, the love of God, and it's yours to desire, yours to be forgiven by, yours to spend your life growing toward. John Calvin put forth a very simple reason why love is the greatest gift. Because faith and hope are our own. Love is diffused among others. In other words, faith and hope benefit the possessor, us. But love always benefits another. Love always requires an other as an object. Love cannot remain within itself. And that is part of what makes love the greatest gift. Love infuses all that God does and love should infuse all that we do. The real miracle, it seems to me, is how much we already know it. How much we've already had a taste of God's love. I remember being overwhelmed when my children were born, wondering how could I love something that little so much? I think maybe some of you here have had that experience. Stunned and disoriented and distorted as it may be in us, love is there. Right there, alongside our insecurities, our anxiety, and our selfishness, love is there. Remembrances of it, longing for it, wanting to give it more perfectly than we have. 
And as blind as we are to things much deeper in ourselves, we have still seen it. And nothing matters so much as having this kind of love. And nothing can bring us the joy as this kind of love. What if, for one day, 24 hours, Jesus were to become you? Imagine that. Your heart gets a day off and your life is led by the heart and love of Christ. His priorities govern your actions. His passions drive your decisions. And his love directs your behavior. Would people notice a difference? What would you be like? How would you feel? What effect would this have on your stress level? And would you still do what you plan to do that day? Obligations, appointments? Would anything in your life change? Another movie comes to mind. It's called Love Actually, and it tells of at least a dozen different kinds of love stories, all intertwined, different kinds of love, different kinds of resolution. It's mostly set in England, and it begins and it ends at the arrival gate at Heathrow Airport. Not with filmed actors, but with real footage of real people finding each other there and embracing each other there. Young, old, parents, children, lovers, friends, laughing, crying, talking, hugging. And then the voiceover comes on and offers these words. Whenever I feel gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrival gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion is that we live in a world of hate and evil, but I don't always see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. You have to look for it. Often, it's not particularly dignified or even newsworthy, but it is always there. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the passengers' calls from on board those planes were about hatred or revenge. They were all messages of love. In my ministry, I have often had the sacred privilege of being at the bedside with people as they entered heaven's gates. During those last few hours or minutes the family spent with their loved one, words of love and encouragement were often spoken to each other. Not once in my 35 years of ministry have I ever heard those precious last moments used to speak of accomplishments or express regret that they should have spent more time at the office. No, they always spoke of love. Suppose that before you die, you were conscious enough to ask for a phone to make one last phone call. What are the chances you would call for any other reason than to convey love to someone? Is this part of what Paul means when he says, in the end, love remains? When you're gone, would you really hope most of what's remembered about you and your life are your achievements? Or would you really have wanted to have left a legacy of love? It really is what Paul is getting at in part when he says at the end of this chapter on love that three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but there will come a time 
when all reasons and need for faith will have fallen away. And hope will lie down to sleep beneath whatever fulfillments are given. And then love alone will remain. When everything else has fallen away, love alone will shine. For the face of God is love. And we who behold that will shine with nothing less. Meanwhile, if we are wise, we will know that our own poor love will never take us there. We can dedicate ourselves to growing toward a love that is more patient, more kind, less irritable, less resentful, less likely to keep score, more likely to be glad only in the truth, but always, always falling short. We cannot do it. Let's face it, we fail at being perfect love to the world, to our family, to our friends, our own heart in and of itself cannot do it. We cannot generate love within ourselves. And love is not just a to-do list that we can check off. Love is a power. And love is a person whose life we must receive. Which is why we bring ourselves again and again to this church and to this table, the Lord's communion table, where his perfect love and our need are joined together joined for us and joined in us, and they are joined together in him. And what we cannot join together and make whole ourselves, the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross, can make us complete. There is indeed a love that does not fall short. And to open ourselves to that, to commit everything that we are and can be to that, is to find that we are actually being held by the unfailing love that really does forgive us, that renews our strength and helps us to go on, and that is lifting us and will lift us more and more to itself, that one love that lasts forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come into your presence so aware of our human frailty and overwhelmed by your love for us. Fill every need, fill every dark crevice here today with your love. Renew our hearts, O God, so that we can become like you, living a life of holy love. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Our hymn of commitment.